Hey there, family. I'm Pastor Jeremy, and welcome to Your Week with St. Luke's. We are continuing our sermon series, The Stories We Live, My Story, as Dr. E.B. leads us through a Bible study on Job chapters 38 through 41. Make sure you stick around afterwards for the office hours portion of our podcast. Let's take a listen. Hello, friends. Thank you for joining me again as we explore the story of Job and how his story helps us to tell our own stories. Specifically, we're telling our stories by narrating what we see God moving us from, God moving us through, and God moving us to. We began the first week discussing how before Job does anything else, before the from, through, or to, he acknowledges his present circumstances and accepts his current feelings. Last week, we observed how Job moves from the voices around him, his wife and his friends, and the opinions of those voices. He finds his own voice, and the rest of his story is told in his own way. Today, we ask, what is it that Job must go through? I mean, he's already lost his children, his flocks and herds, servants and land. Job iterates that in addition to all those physical losses, he's also lost immaterial things. His status in the community, his esteem and respect from his friends and colleagues, and even the closeness of his remaining family and friends. What else is left for Job to go through? Job repeatedly refers to his situation as darkness. In chapter 17, verse 9, he refers to the grave as his house and darkness as his bed. Job says of God in chapter 19, verse 8, He has walled up my way so I cannot pass and has set darkness upon my paths. Finally, Job declares, I waited for good and evil came. I waited for the light, but only darkness arrived. This is very different from the life he knew before, says Job. In in chapter 29, verses 2 and 3, Job describes the time before his calamities as the days when God watched over me, when God's lamp shone over my head, and by his light I walked through darkness. Job is now on an unfamiliar path, heartbreak and loss, and he has no guide. He doesn't know how to navigate this type of journey. If he's not going to curse God and die, as his wife suggested, how is he to continue on with God when he cannot see God, when he cannot even see the path ahead? Job says of God in chapter 9, verse 11, God passes near me, but I don't see him. And he moves by, but I can't perceive him. Later, Job says, if I go forward, he's not there, or backward, I still can't see him. On the left, he hides, and I don't see him, and on the right, I can't behold him. If Job is to persist in his relationship with God, indeed, if Job is even to persist in living, he has to continue by groping his way in the dark. This is what Job must go through, darkness. Like a dark tunnel or dense forest, the only way out of any darkness is through. While this sounds foreboding and dismal, 
there's a portion of Job that has something very interesting to say about the possibilities that going through darkness offers. In chapter 28, Job takes a brief pause from questioning God's methods and defending his own cause. And here in chapter 28, he riffs on how does one discover wisdom? What's really interesting is that Job suspects that wisdom has something to do with darkness. He says that Earth's treasures, silver and gold, jewels and iron and copper, they're all mined. They're all brought forth by those who descend into darkness. He says, in the deepest gloom and darkness, in tunnels away from where any humans live. By that analogy, where then, Job inquires, is wisdom found? It's also a treasure. It is also not at the end of a well-lit path. He says wisdom is hidden from the eyes of all the living. Wisdom, like all those other treasures, is perhaps not always found by sight and in the light. In fact, I would suggest that if you ever see a flashing neon sign that says wisdom here with arrows pointing, be very suspicious. Perhaps certain wisdom can only be found in the dark and perhaps by feel rather than sight. And Job reckons that God is the only one who knows the way to such wisdom. And Job is right about that. When God finally responds to Job in chapter 38, God says that he indeed knows the dwelling place of darkness, he says, and the path to its home. In her book, Learning to Walk in the Dark, Barbara Brown Taylor refers to this way of acquiring wisdom as endarkment. Just as we use the term enlightenment to mean that we gain understanding by seeing something clearly and having a light turned on that exposes all of its facets, endarkenment suggests that we gain wisdom or understanding sometimes by not seeing clearly. In this way, it seems that other senses, other ways of perceiving truth can be opened and engaged by turning off our sight. Taylor reminds us that in the story of creation, darkness is neither bad nor is it inferior to the light. In fact, darkness and God both existed and existed together before light and with it time began. We might say that darkness is God's native habitat. It was in the darkness and out of the darkness that God began to create all that we experience. Interestingly, when God finally speaks to Job, it's from inside a whirlwind. Do you hear the echo of the creation story? God's spirit moving as wind while cloaked in darkness. Even as he reveals himself, God's presence remains somewhat obscured. And just because Job must continue blindly does not imply that he continue as one who is mute. True, he cannot see the path forward or where God is in relation to it, 
but he does not stop letting God locate him. Remember last week, we talked about how Job finds his own voice to tell his story. He doesn't just use this voice to tell his story to his friends, but it gives him the courage to tell God. In chapter 23, Job says that if he knew where to find God, he would march up to his house, knock on the door, and demand he answer his questions. Job says, now would God contend with me in the greatness of his power? No, but he would listen to me. Job continuously calls God to account for his actions and even for his inactions to show himself and show his hand. Job is what Walter Brueggemann, a Hebrew Bible scholar, calls the faithful complainer. Here's how Brueggemann defines such a faithful person. Quote, the faithful complainer is a member of the covenant with Yahweh. And so the speaker has certain rights before God. It is for that reason that the speaker can voice petitions to God that amount to imperatives. The reason imperatives can be addressed to God is that God has made promises of fidelity, and God is now summoned to keep those promises in the face of trouble. Therefore, complaint, protest, Lament is an expression of the lamenter's faithfulness to God and to the relationship, the covenant with God. For example, if I'm faithful to my spouse and committed to my marriage relationship, I would not be silent, and nor should I be, if I suspect my spouse is not being faithful as well. In fact, if I was not disturbed by such actions, it would demonstrate how little the relationship meant to me. In such a case, accusation or complaint demonstrates how much I honor the relationship. There's another reason why such complaint or lament demonstrates faithfulness. Lament is a form of worship. Now, hear me out. The main instruction to the people of Israel upon receiving the covenant was, according to Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, you shall love the Lord your God with your whole heart. I want to suggest that we can understand your whole heart also in the sense as your every heart, meaning that it's not only our happy hearts that God desires to receive in worship, but our broken hearts, our angry hearts, our sad and tired hearts. Just think, if God wants all the pieces of our hearts as they are at any given time, just listen to the ways that the Psalms describe the human worshiper's heart. Psalm 13, 2. How long must I bear pain in my soul and sorrow in my heart all day long? Psalm twenty-two, fourteen: my heart is like wax, it is melted within me. Psalm 25, 17, my heart is troubled and distressed. In Psalm 38, 8, my heart is tumultuous. In Psalm 40, 12, evil has encompassed me, my iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see past them. They are more than the hairs on my head and my heart sinks inside me. 
The psalmist in Psalm 51, verse 17, describes his heart as a broken and guilt-ridden heart. The psalmist in Psalm 55 says, my heart is in anguish. And the psalmist in the 102nd Psalm, verse 4, says, my heart is stricken and withers like grass. All of these hearts we have just heard throughout the Psalms are all appearing in these songs of worship. And so I would say that to refrain from lamenting, to refrain from expressing anguish or anger and confusion is actually to withhold worship from God. Such withholding demonstrates a belief that God either cannot handle or does not value our whole selves. In our language about telling our stories, what we've moved from, through, and to, if we only offer God our glad and light hearts, if we never lament or question, then God is only the God of the two part of our story. God is only God of our destinations and not of our journey. Another way in which Job's complaint is considered faithful worship is that it's based on the recognition of God as creator. Now, God's role as creator is an important theme throughout Job. Job's friends constantly refer to God's ultimate sovereignty and righteousness as revealed by God's creating the world. And indeed, when God himself answers Job at the end of the book, all he does is point toward his creation. God has these wonderful lines like, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the world? Have you entered the storehouses of snow? Do you give the horse its might? God tells Job the story of Leviathan, the great sea monster, and how he plays with it like a pet in a backyard swimming pool. But not only do the friends and God use God's role as creator as evidence for God's goodness and greatness, Job uses God's creatorship as evidence for calling God to his responsibility. Job says in chapter 10, verses 8 through 11, Your hands fashioned and made me, and now you turn and destroy me. Remember that you fashioned me like clay. Will you just turn me to dust again? You clothed me with skin and flesh and knit me together with bones and sinews. A little later, Job tells his friends in chapter 12, verse 10, that God is responsible for Job's circumstances because in his hand, Job says, is the life of every living being and the breath of every human being. In other words, Job claims that because God has created him and his life, Job now insists the manufacturer stand by his craftsmanship. Since God has created, God must sustain. As we have done each week in this study of Job, we notice how Job's story finds a parallel with the story of Jesus in the Gospels. Mark's Gospel tells us that when Jesus is on the cross, quote, it was noon and darkness covered the whole land for three hours. Chapter 15, verse 33. We can surmise that Jesus felt as blind 
and as in the dark as Job. Since Jesus yells from the cross and in the dark, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus dies with this question, dare I say this accusation on his lips. God, why have you extinguished all the lights and left me to go through this in the dark? Two things are important to notice about Jesus's story. First, these words are not Jesus's own invention. Jesus is quoting the words of the 22nd Psalm. Jesus is not the first or the last worshiper of God to lament God's apparent absence or silence during crisis. I think it's important that on the cross, Jesus reaches back across centuries and repeats the words of this unknown psalmist who gave voice to the heartbreak of feeling abandoned by God and confused by that abandonment. And remember, the psalms were hymns, songs of worship. And at the hour of his death on the cross and in the dark, Jesus acknowledges God's presence by questioning him about his absence. Second, after Jesus screams his accusation at God, Mark says that Jesus gives a loud cry and breathes his last. And when the centurion standing by saw this, he remarked, this must indeed be God's son. Isn't it odd that watching someone yell, my God, why have you abandoned me? would indicate an intimacy between that person and God, such as father and son. Yet it does require intimacy to utter such a cry in the first place. Jesus worshiped God with his whole heart, even the part that was broken, angry, and hurt. To be sure, Jesus' willingness to go to the cross, obedient to God and on behalf of others, certainly demonstrated his faithfulness. But it's important to see how Jesus' cry to God from the cross also expressed his faithfulness. In the midst of, through the darkness and feelings of desertion, Jesus cries out to God because he believes that God is yet there, even in the darkness that God is somehow present, even in his absence. In regard to the from, through, and to, Jesus acknowledges that God is God of his through, on the cross, and in the tomb. Mark tells us that the darkness while Jesus hung on the cross lasted three hours, and the darkness of the tomb lasted three days. Through did not last forever. But it was important that God was not God only of the resurrection, but in the darkness of Calvary. The Apostle Paul remarks on it this way, Christ died and lived again so that he may be Lord of both the living and the dead. Romans 14, 9. As we continue to follow the path of Christ as his disciples, and as we tell our stories with our own voices, our question must be, is God the God of my living and my dead? 
of my light and of my darkness, of my joy and my sorrow. Ultimately, is God the God of my through as much as he is the God of where I am on my way to? I can't wait to hear about the conversations you have around that. Where do you see God in your through? Or where would you like to invite God to be in your through? Or if you don't see him, what do you see? What does offer hope, even when it's dark? I hope you're blessed this week. And next week, I invite you back as we wrap up the study on Job, where we see where Job finally arrives, where God brings him to. And may we also learn something from that in order to continue telling our story about what God has moved us from, through, and to. Greetings, family. I, of course, am Pastor Jeremy, and I'm here with Dr. Karen Scheib. And welcome to our office hours portion of Your Week at St. Luke's. Today, we're going to be looking at um, what we just talked about with Dr. E.B., Job chapters 38 through 40. And we're dealing with Job's kind of changing narrative of God and his expression of that. Hi, Dr. Scheib. How are you? I'm good. Nice to see you, Jeremy. Good to see you, too. Uh, we were just talking about Dr. Scheib and I, how serendipitous it is that we would be together to talk about our stories of God today, because I took at Candler School of Theology uh, creative writing as a spiritual practice with Dr. Scheib, and she took it upon herself to encourage me to continue to write in that way and kind of in that vein and in that spirit. Um, I want to talk about how our stories of God can kind of become weaved into our overall narrative of life. Of life. I mean, um, could you share uh, your heart about that, Dr. Shab? Yes, I'd, I'd, I'd love to. So I think if we are Christians, we adopt the Christian story. Uh, we assume the Christian story is part of our own. And I, But I do think there's a reflection of who we are and how we think about God. And there's an interesting story that's uh, that's that's famous, somewhat apocryphal, but I think there's some truth to it about um, Karl Barth. I don't know if you've heard the story. Um, pretty famous theologian who wrote four volumes of church dogmatics, pretty intense, um, dense, systematic theology. And he was asked once by a student, supposedly he was lecturing at the University of Chicago in 1962, and a student asked him if he could summarize his whole life's work of theology in a single sentence. And reportedly he said something like this, yes, I can. In the words of a song I learned at my mother's knee, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And I've heard this story many times. And from what I can tell, it's I've heard it in sermons, I've seen it in church newsletters. I, probably the number of people who've heard that story is a lot higher than the number of people who actually read Bart's Dogmatics. Yeah. But I, I think it catches people's imagination. It speaks to them in some important ways. I'd agree with that for sure. Um, I mean, yeah, I don't think a lot of more folks have heard that story than have read Church Dogmatics because Church Dogmatics is a pretty huge <laughs> undertaking. Um, but I'm curious, why do you think that that story is kind of told and retold the way that it is? What do you think that it does for people? How do you think it functions? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I think part of it is just the image of this brilliant theologian quoting a children's song, Capture Our Imagination. It's a good story. It's a story about God's love, which I think is a central Christian story. It's a story told in everyday language. 
And it it resonates with most of us. If most of us were asked to sum up our theology, we wouldn't probably write four volumes of of a, a books. We would we would recite a favorite biblical passage or a hymn or a song. And it also resonates with us because what we learn about our faith actually really begins with the experiences in our family, with being loved and the stories we are told and the songs that we hear. The, the thing that's interesting is, is that most of us who would say, we might say something similar if asked to sum up our theology, but we wouldn't think of ourselves as theologians. Um, and I think most lay people don't think of themselves as theologians. Is this your experience? Do you think that's true? I would probably have to agree with that. I think that a lot of folks, uh, when approached with the word theology or with the Bible itself, uh, can feel kind of anxious. And I think a lot of folks can really struggle with where to get started, let, let alone acknowledging themselves as doing theology or being theologians. And then on top of that, I think that not many of us were raised probably in uh, environments where we were encouraged to explore our theological imaginations. Uh, yeah. Well, and that's actually why I use the language of our God story, because theology basically, as you know, is a study about who God is and how God works in the world. And if we are Christians at all, we, we think about these things. Um, theologians Howard Stone and James Duke say to be Christian at all is to be a theologian. There are no exceptions. Even if we don't formally study the nature of God and God's relation to the world, we, can't, we, we do have ideas about who God is and how God's at work in the world and in our lives. And these stories about God communicate our theology, our basic beliefs, even if it's not very systematic, because we all have ideas about God. Few of us might be as precise as Bart but, or have as fully a formed systematic theology, but we think about these questions are important to us. Is God love? Is God a parent? Is God a judge? What's God's nature? Uh, how does God work in the world? How does God answer prayer? These are all theological questions. And by the way, John Wesley was not a very systematic theologian, as you know. He's much more practical theologian. Right, right. So, and, and the Bible, of course, is not a test text of systematic theology, but a collection of stories, sayings, and poetry. And our thought theology, our ideas about God are drawn from these stories. We know God through the stories of the Bible, the stories of, from the history of the church, the embodied stories of the rituals and practices. And if we've grown up in a home where faith is important, we've heard stories about God from our family or, again, in practices if we prayed at the dinner table. And some of us who didn't grow up in those homes then begin to, we learn those stories in church. We begin to adopt them. They become part of our stories. And those stories, if they're especially if they're positive stories about God's love and grace, help us shape ourselves into seeing ourselves as children of God and as, as people that are grace-filled. Mm -hmm. I'm really struck by um, that quote that to be Christian at all is to be a theologian, right? Um, and we see that kind of tension with Job where he wants to express his experience of God in the moment, but because it's so different <laughs> than maybe what others are saying, that there's just so much uh, pushback there. Um, and I wonder if I wonder what our world would look like if we uh, accepted that idea that to be a Christian is to be a theologian and respected each other's uh, stories as well. And so thinking about our own stories, I'm curious, Dr. Shab, if you had to sum up your theology uh, in a similar way that uh, Karl Barth was asked, what would you say? Well, I would be close to Bart, but I'd probably quote John, First uh, John 4, 7, dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from God. 
and everyone whose love has no who loves has been born of God and knows God. And love and grace are really central to Wesley's theology too. So I've been shaped both by that strain in Wesleyan theology. And for me, the Christian story really is a love story. Um, and it's a story of freely given, unconditional love. Unfortunately, not all of us experience God in that way. And sometimes, again, it's back to those confining stories of our family. We may have experienced um, more conditional love in our families, or we may think of God as a judgmental parent if we had strict parents. Um, when I worked with a pastoral counselor, I had a client that could quote John 3.16, for God so loved the world, but didn't believe that that, that, that statement included them. So, so we get these stories, we have these positive stories, but sometimes our, our faith stories constrain us. And we see that in Job. He's, he's struggling against, especially when the friends come along and give different versions of the story. They're not always helpful to him. Yeah, true. Uh, and we see that kind of back and forth with his friends. And we realize that our theology and the way we understand God is often shaped by those who are around us and how uh, they understand God as well. Right. And so we see people receiving unhelpful, unhealthy theologies about their own personhood. We see that a lot with our uh, our, our siblings who happen to be LGBTQIA plus. Right. Um, what do you think? our responsibility is clergy folks uh, or, or theologians is to help challenge and combat those kind of theologies being passed down and spread? Well, I certainly think that's that those of us who are, are clergy or have a teaching responsibility do have, and we're trained, theologically trained, to challenge these damaging religious stories. But I think as Christians generally, Again, as I said earlier, I believe the Christian story is a love story, and grace is at the heart of our Wesleyan theology, grace that is unmerited and freely given. And when the church tells stories that leave us feeling that we are damaged goods rather than precious children of God, we have to challenge those. And even some of us who say we believe in free and unmerited grace feel like we have to earn that love. I don't know if you know Kate Bowler's book, um, uh, everything happens for a reason and other lives, lives I've loved. And she talks about her own struggle as a historian of the prosperity gospel when she herself was ill, feeling like if she prayed hard enough, she would get better. So we all, all carry these stories that are difficult. And it's often only when tragedy strikes, like in Job, that we begin to realize that the faith stories we have aren't adequate to carry us. Mm -hmm. I would agree. Um could you say more about um, why you think it is that when tragedy strikes, we we are kind of pushed to dig deeper into our understandings about God and, and, and our theology in general? Yeah, I think, well, I think we fall back on what I call our kind of embedded theology. So if, um, you know, if a whole 100 year old grandparent dies and we say this is God's will, that might be a faith statement that's adequate to get us through the grief at that point. But if it's the death of a child, that's generally not, it, it doesn't sustain us. And, and the thing is, we don't often question those things all at once. Um, we, we find ourselves beginning to challenge them and um, thinking, well, that story worked before, but it doesn't work now. And we, we kind of see this in the book of Job, which, as you said, you're studying now. And after he's experienced all of these multiple tragedies, he says, um, 
Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will return. It is Yahweh who's given and Yahweh is taken. Blessed be the name of Yahweh. And I hear these, these words as an expression of his understanding of himself and God as he's lived it up to this point. It's sort of what he was trained to say. And he, he still believes he's righteous. He believes God is faithful. And he's saying the words that are familiar. But we begin to see that that story won't hold him. And trauma shifts the ground beneath us. And we, we find ourselves saying, this can't be happening. And I'm not sure this story is will get me through this difficulty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is kind of hard to try and take, uh, I guess, <laughs> I don't know if this uh, metaphor completely uh, overlaps, but old wine and put it in the new wine skins, right? To take our stories about God from the past and just overlap them with what we're uh, experiencing now, right? We, uh, Dr. Eby introduced this phrase uh, to, to, to me, I had never heard it before, but the theology of now. And it seems like you have to do theology in real time to kind of wade through the difficulty of, of what you're experiencing in the moment. Yeah, in, in a way, the categories that begin in Job are, are categories of justice and injustice. So it's the, kind of the worldview is this that the righteous are rewarded and the unjust are punished. Mm-hmm. So and what Job experiences, he, all these tragedies feels like punishment, but he knows he's a righteous person who hasn't sinned against God. And he begins to challenge this. Um, and his friends, in a sense, the stories that they give they make sense in the world they inhabit, but they basically assume the world continues as it has before. But Job's world has been shattered. And they're sort of saying, well, here are some other stories that these are stories that everybody accepts. And he rejects all of them. None of them make sense of his shattered world. Their worlds aren't shattered. His is. That's the stories they offer him just don't work for him. And he finally gets angry and, and doing that begins to form a different story. And the story that his friends tell him still sort of holds on to the notion that the righteous are blessed and the wicked are punished. Um, He begins to imagine a story in which he's been falsely accused and he wants to have his day in court with God. And that's what we see a kind of courtroom scene in which it, he thinks that, well, if a God is a just judge, then he better explain his judgment. You know why this is happening to him. Come here and explain yourself. Right. All right. And in that kind of back and forth with God, God doesn't really follow Job's script, does he? No, not especially in the latter chapters. God really completely shifts the narrative. And the narrative still is assuming in Job, Job's part, justice and justice, justice and injustice. And that's why sort of it's framed in a courtroom scene. But God, God jumps to creation. God says, it's if God's saying, you don't get it, Job. You don't see the larger story. You had a story of who you are and who I am, but it's partial. It's small. Think bigger. And only at the end of the book does Job finally seem to seem to shift his view of the world and in God, of God. He appears to let go of his need to form the story in terms of justice and injustice. Mm-hmm. He acknowledges he has spoken without knowledge, is the word. And he appears to tacitly acknowledge that God that the world that God created is different than he imagined. That's where we have the behemoth and, you know, that all these things that God has created and the lion and, and God is really saying, your frame is too small. You're, you're looking at the story in this way. My story is much more encompassing. There are pieces that you cannot see. 
And he also seems, Joe begins to see the possibility, not of punishment, but of tragedy. The tragedy, it's a different category than justice and injustice. His sense of center is shifted and it's no longer only about him. And he, he says a little bit that he is sort of repenting in dust and ashes and there's different interpretations of that, but he seems to accept that part of being human is to suffer mm. and it's not punishment. And we begin to get a sense that Job's sense of himself and God has shifted. But this is what's so interesting about the book, exactly where it's shifted to or what that looks like, we don't know. It's kind of an open-ended story. And I think that's really fascinating. Yeah. Doesn't that kind of represent? So uh, Job has this moment where uh, he confronts God and God shows up. Right. Uh, and 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 you kind of get to see this expanding of God's story before Job's eyes. Right. Um, and then the book clo- leave uh, or ending kind of open ended like that just kind of leaves the possibilities of where it expands to uh, just up to your imagination. Right. And so in that moment, being confronted with the fullness of who God is, uh, his understanding of God's story expands and also the possibility of his place in God's story expands as well right exactly who he is and what it means to be in relationship to God and in his family that that yeah so that's how those our story and our God stories are connected that we begin to see God differently we also have to see ourselves differently if we are sort of embedded in in God's story. So it's not just that we have a story about God. God has a larger story that we are a part of, but we often only see it partially. And the good news of this open-endedness of Job is, is that, that if, if Job can change his God's story, then we can change our God's story. We're not stuck with the ones we inherit. And we can do it intentionally. It often happens to us. Job is sort of forced to change his story because of tragedy. But but we can choose stories that allow us to flourish as the way that God intends and not stories that confine or constrain us. So this is the gift that Job gives us is this possibility of, of, of writing a new story of ourselves and God together, moving in some open-ended directions. Mm, that's beautiful. Um, and as we kind of end our time together, I want to challenge folks listening to to question, uh, how is God expanding uh, God's story in from your perspective? And how is your story wrapped up and weaved in God's story? Thank you so much, Dr. Shah, for giving us so much to think about. Um, I'm sorry, I ran out of gas. <laughs> I ran out of gas.